0: Welcome to The Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's counsel, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at
1: theadvocacypodcast.com. Today's guest is Sarah clark QC, a renowned expert in insider dealing investment fraud and market abuse law. She is also a leading global advocacy trainer and perfectly placed to give advice to junior lawyers and those with more experience. In this episode, Sarah provides advice on steps you can take to sharpen and elevate your courtroom skills. Hi Sarah, how are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. And can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, please?
0: I was called to the bar in 1994. I took silk in 2017 and became a a recorder in, first of all, the criminal court in 2012, and then later on the civil county court as well. My specialist areas are market abuse law, um, insider dealing, investment fraud, misleading statements, that kind of thing. I also do FCA enforcement litigation and wider financial regulatory proceedings. And then I do um, a nice mix of other things, inquests, police discipline, a little bit more mainstream fraud or crime, private prosecutions and occasionally GMC cases.
1: Obviously, that's not where you started. Can you give us a description about what you were like as an advocate at the start of your career? And then perhaps we can compare it to where you are now.
0: So at the start of my career, all I wanted to do was um, prosecute and defend murders and big criminal cases. And so I went off and did pupillage in what was then a general common law set. They don't really exist now, I don't think. And specialised in general crime. But I also did you know, all sorts of um, sort of minor, very minor, civil and housing and that sort of stuff. I did a bit of family law as well, um, which, BB, I admire you hugely. for being able to do it. For me, I'm afraid just wasn't my thing at all. So anyway, slowly but surely, I ended up doing more or less general crime. I then moved to a completely general crime set where I stayed for about six, seven, eight years. And then there came a time when I went on secondment to the what was then the Financial Services Authority in about 2004 and worked in-house there for the next um, five, six years until I then moved in 2011 to the chambers that I'm in now. So the original question was, what was I like as an advocate when I first started out? The answer was absolutely hopeless. Because we had really no training. These compulsory training came in a year or two after I had done pupillage and was then on my way. So we literally had no training at all. And so all the advocacy that I learned, I just picked up by going and watching more senior advocates in court during my spare time and also by reading a few books and, frankly, trial and error. And moreover, making catastrophic mistakes, which then, of course, teach you quite a lot about what not. to do. So that was the kind of advocate that I was. So I I was pretty hopeless. I had a small amount of natural talent, but not as much as frankly I would have liked. The
1: rest of it was self-taught. You mentioned that you had a small amount of natural talent. What do you think your natural strengths were in terms of advocacy?
0: Well, as I say, I don't think that I was born to be Marshall Hall or anything like that. I've always, I think, had quite a a loud voice. People used to tell me that, and I think they still do. And I at least have the ability to appear relatively confident, So that was a good start. What I didn't have was any of the technical expertise in how to use any of that in order to become a really effective advocate. And I had absolutely no idea how to do examination in chief and cross-examination, for example. Um, What an open question was, as opposed to what a closed question was and what the point of it all is. That I had to learn at the coalface. And frankly, I'm afraid, at time to time, at the expense of the clients.
1: When you were listening to other advocates, you mentioned that you did this during your spare time. Was there anything specific that you were looking for or was it really whatever sounded good that you thought that you might be able to take on is what you did and continue developing that way?
0: What I used to do was um, I would always, when I would finished doing whatever minor bit of rubbish that I was instructed in, I would always go and find a court where there were silks And I would sit in the public gallery and hope that whatever it was that they were doing would turn out to be something that I could learn from. And so I watched some fantastic cross-examinations, examinations-in-chief, legal argument. I mean, frankly, sometimes I couldn't even really follow what the legal argument was about. But what I did was sort of take notes as to the way in which they were making their submissions. And I just learnt by watching really good people doing really difficult cases really
1: well. In terms of the books that you read, are there any that you can suggest for our listeners to read?
0: The one that I would recommend now and always do is Ian Morley's Devil's Advocate. That wasn't available when I was starting out. But in my view, it's the most accessible and most practical advocacy book on the market. Um, He tells me, he's a friend, but he doesn't pay me for plugging his book. But he tells me it's the most sold book in the world on advocacy training. And I, I believe it. And it's a small paperback book. There's not that many words in it. But what it really does is actually encapsulate what the key skills are for advocacy. And it does it in a really accessible, practical way. And that's the book that I would recommend anyone read. And if I had had that book available when I was junior, that's the one I would have read. In the absence of that, I read all the ones that have been around for years. So Wellman's Art of Cross-Examination. Christian Ducan wrote a quite a good book on advocacy as well. But the trouble with those kind of books is that they're really interesting. But what they don't really do is tell you how to do the basics. So it doesn't give you the basic skills of closed questions in cross-examination and how to structure an examination in chief. They describe, you know, the cases where silks or senior lawyers have come along and been brilliant, but it doesn't really then teach
1: you how you can do the same. Whereas Ian Morley's book actually gives you the basic tools that you need. You've been described as a formidable advocate in court. What do you think makes you formidable?
0: To be honest, I actually think the answer to that is preparation. That's what I learned in the end is that there are no shortcuts. And advocates who get up and make it all look terribly easy will only be making it as easy as the preparation that will have gone into it. And what I found in my own advocacy is my advocacy is only as ever as good as, as how much work I've done behind the scenes. So a cross-examination, for example, that, that lasts, say, a day and a half, will probably take me a week to prepare. And that's the only way, in my experience, to be a formidable advocate.
1: Do you think you have a particular skill? that um, helps you succeed. As time has gone on, you've obviously built your skill set, but so what do you think now is the particular skill that helps you succeed?
0: Funnily enough, the thing that used to terrify me the most when I first started out was cross-examination. And the main reason for that was because I didn't have a clue how to do it. And so I'd just get up and start asking questions and it would all unravel. And then I'd get into a row with the witness and then it would unravel even more. And then I'd kind of grind to a halt and think, oh gosh, I'm the worst advocate in the world. But once I'd actually worked out how you're supposed to do it, i.e. you structure it carefully, you you plan your closed questions so that you hem the witness into particular answers, you know, you work out where it is you're going to start in the narrative and and you've got your clear plan. Once you've done that, actually, cross-examination becomes a lot easier and starts to become really enjoyable. And I think now um, that's the thing that I get most compliments for. So I think I'd probably have to say cross-examination examination's my strength
1: you're also an advocacy trainer and that's actually how we met because you're training at Keeble college. So can you give us a summary of the experience that you have as an advocacy trainer because I know it's quite detailed and (laughs) you train lots and lots of people.
0: That's another reason why I have become over time an effective advocate is the advocacy training that I've done. I was a participant on the Keeble course in 1999. At that time it was the only advocacy training available to people of my cause. As I say there was no compulsory training through the inn or anything like that. So I went on that course and I just was blown away by how amazing it was and how all these senior really senior important judges and silks and senior juniors had given up their time to come and train, you know, the likes of me and I learned so much from that that I actually asked the then director who was Tim Dutton QC who started created the course whether I could come back and just be a helper and help out and he was delighted and said yes please and so I started doing that and then after doing that for a year or so he then said that he decided that he needed more help with running the course so he got me and another junior from his chambers Richard Coleman to basically run the criminal and the civil sides of the course for him so I I used to have to invite all the trainers and well he would tell me who to invite obviously but I would do all the legwork the case studies timetabling and all the admin basically was done by Richard and I and this was in the days before people were comfortable about using email so I remember that I used to be up at say two o'clock in the morning because I'd had just had a baby put the baby to bed and then I'd be up at two o'clock in the morning handwriting invitations to trainers to come to Keeble and then sort of licking the envelopes putting the address on sticking on the stamp and I'd have to keep you know a schedule of who'd replied and things like that anyway I would go along to Keeble every year as part of that and I just made sure that every minute I could I went and watched all the lectures I would go and watch the students doing their um, advocacy training and more importantly what I'd be doing is watching the trainers and I would do things like volunteering to go and operate the video cameras in the um, teaching rooms just so that I could be there watching the way in which the advocates were taught. And that's, I think, to be honest, that is one of the things that taught me the most about good advocacy, that where pennies really dropped as to what I was supposed to be doing and how to do it. I then became an advocacy trainer myself when I was about seven, eight years cool at the Inner Temple. I then did a lot of advocacy training at the Inner Temple. That naturally gravitated to me doing a lot of advocacy training at uh, Keeble. As a result of that, I then started asked, being asked to do advocacy training all over the world. So I've been really, really lucky. And I've been to some fascinating places, met some incredible people and learned a huge amount from them by having the privilege of, of taking our advocacy training literally all over the world.
1: Just to go through a few of those, you've trained in Pakistan, Malaysia, Sierra Leone, the International Criminal Court for former Yugoslavia Supreme Court for Bosnia and Herzegovina. It's really amazing. Have you found that there have been any challenges for training internationally?
0: Yeah. Oh, gosh, yes. Loads. And every time you've got to adapt your approach to your target audience and be really very sensitive to things that might inadvertently cause offence or might just put up a barrier between you and the people that you're trying to train. I can think of two examples of that. One was in the Supreme Court in Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is um, a court that was set up to basically try the residual war crimes cases from the Yugoslavian war. The idea being that the Yugoslavian war crimes tribunal was going to close down and then each country, so Bosnia, Herzegovina, Serbia and Croatia, were going to try the remaining war criminals themselves. So we were there to train the prosecutors, none of whom spoke any English at all. And so we had to do advocacy training through simultaneous translation. The translators were unbelievably good but of course it's very very difficult to translate headlines like lead the witness in cross-examination because that doesn't necessarily when it's translated mean the same thing And so you had to be really careful to be very um, measured, very short, to use short sentences and be very, very specific about what it was that you were asking them to do differently and just make sure that the explanation was really clear and really simple and devoid of any um, English colloquialisms which just wouldn't translate through the simultaneous translation. And when we started this, I think we all thought, is this really possible? Can we actually do advocacy training this Way? But the answer is yes, you absolutely can. And we did. And by the end of it, the advocates had improved enormously. And not only that, we'd also been able to forge a working relationship using simultaneous translation as well. We did have that sort of group camaraderie that you always look for when you're doing advocacy training, even though we couldn't speak a word of BCS and most of the trainees couldn't speak very much English. So that was a real challenge. The other one was um, in Pakistan where we were training um, prosecutors in a courtroom advocacy. I think there were two women on the course. The rest obviously were men. I found myself in a teaching room on my own with a group of male trainees, all of whom were a lot older than me. And I had to try to find a way to forge a a working relationship with them so that they didn't feel that I was there to embarrass them, humiliate them, criticize them, make them look small in front of their colleagues, which is a big thing in Pakistan. And of course, they didn't know me at all. And so the way that I did that was to just say at the beginning, I know that you do an incredibly difficult job under very difficult circumstances. I realise that there's probably more you can teach me than the other way round. But the reason why I'm here is to just teach you, if I can, a few basic techniques, which I know you already know, but I'm just going to use this opportunity that we've been given to just brush up on the basic skills that you already know and I said you know I want to learn as much from you as you learn from me and then did a sort of scene setting as to how the set training was going to run this is how we were going to do it the intention was not to embarrass anybody etc etc and actually that seemed to break the ice I spent the whole week with that group and we had an enormous amount of fun they all got really into it they particularly enjoyed playing witnesses as well as being the advocates and they really did learn a huge amount that was something that started out as a huge challenge and ended up being a real pleasure, and I learned a massive amount from them. I mean, not least of which you realise that in some jurisdictions, it's actually it's dangerous being a lawyer. And some of these people were practicing; they were the only prosecutors in the area in which they worked. And so, therefore, if they were prosecuting the local crime organised crime gang, their safety is actually at risk, and so is the safety of their families. And one man said to me, you know, there are times when I don't like to walk too close to the forest because I don't know what's going to happen. And I just can't imagine what it must be like to, to be an advocate, a lawyer, practicing in circumstances where you know that if a case doesn't go the way of the organized criminal or, or terrorist or whatever, that, that you personally could be at risk as a result. It's humbling. It really is humbling to realise how fortunate we are that we don't have to live in an environment like that.
1: If you're able to equip them with even better advocacy techniques, it does make somewhat of a difference, doesn't it?
0: Yeah, it just gives confidence. That's the thing is people often lack confidence, not because they're not any good, but because like me, when I started, they just have never been given those basic advocacy tools, which when you know what they are, and then you practice them, make all the difference. And suddenly a cross examination starts to be fun because it starts to work. And so once you've you've given them those tools, then you give them confidence. And confidence is everything when it comes to advocacy.
1: In jurisdictions like the States and Australia, which I know that you have been to, how have you found training practitioners out there? Because obviously the culture isn't as different as, say, in Bosnia, for example, or Pakistan. But how have you found that?
0: Australia, their style is very similar to ours. So that was actually pretty easy. Their advocacy training programs are run on a very similar lines to ours. And in fact, I know a lot of the Australian trainers because I've talked with them over the years. They've come over to the UK or I've met them in South Africa or Hong Kong or wherever. And so actually that was pretty easy. Americans, their style is similar to ours in many ways. But of course, there are some fundamental differences. Like, for example, they have an obligation not to put their case, whereas, of course, we do. So that's one big difference. The other difference, of course, is that they walk around a bit more, whereas we never do. And so they're better, in fact, than we are at doing um, sort of extempore speaking, but without using any notes. And the other thing is, of course, that they tend to go for perhaps a slightly more flamboyant, aggressive style, which isn't necessarily what we do. But The point of of doing international training is not to try and turn advocates from other jurisdictions into us, into clones of us. It's just to give them the tools, the basic tools, which are cross-transferable across any jurisdiction, and then let the advocate take those tools and make them work for them. So what I tend not to do is to do training which talks about style, In those circumstances, because I always accept that the style is going to be different. And I tend to focus on the actual content and the way in which questions were asked in cross examination, how well structured was the submission, that sort of thing, rather than picking them up on stylistic things that might be an issue in the UK, but probably aren't where they where they practice.
1: And I want to talk to you about how more experienced practitioners can improve their advocacy. And the reason is I've been really fortunate and I was able to go to Keeble for an advanced training course and also Florida and Australia. A number of practitioners can't do that because they're busy. They, they have their practice. They can't take a week off and do this. So really just wanted to look at how do you think more established practitioners so not the very genie ones can start identifying their own bad habits or areas for improvement especially if they don't get feedback from their peers what do you think people can do?
0: You very rarely do get feedback from your peers, so that's not likely to be a fruitful exercise. When people say, oh, I haven't got time to do training or, you know, I can't afford it or whatever, I'm always a bit sceptical about that, to be honest. I mean, for example, the Keeble Advocacy course, yes, it's a week out of your diary, but it's right at the end of August, which is when the courts are on go slow anyway. And we offer 25 scholarships for people who are practising in publicly funded law. And that's the only criteria. It's a simple application form. We don't even ask for references because we take it on trust what the applicants say. And yet, incredibly, we can't ever fill all 25 places. I don't know what the reasons are. We've tried everything we can think of. So I am a little bit sceptical of people who say that they just don't have the opportunity to access advocacy training But if they genuinely can't and they don't feel that even with a free scholarship to Keeble that they can give up the time to do it, then there are now increasingly smaller courses around and Zoom courses, which you can actually just do from your living room or seminars on advocacy. So, for example, the ICCA have been doing seminars on how to do advocacy over Zoom. And you can just um, plug into that from the privacy of your study at home or whatever and watch it. There are things like this, Bibi, that you're doing. And if you look online, you can find similar things. TED Talks, I think, are a real uh, mine of useful information. If you go onto the TED website, as you know, you probably know, you can find talks by all sorts of different people talking about everything under the sun. The only criteria is that the talks are only allowed to last about 10 minutes. And there's every different type of advocacy and advocate that you will find on there but it will teach you an enormous amount about how to craft a submission how to keep an audience engaged um, how to speak without notes for example um, how to use hand gestures and pace and tone pause that sort of thing there's a lot out there the other thing is the internet So for example, I learned jury advocacy in terms of how to engage a jury by going on the internet and just literally typing into Google presentation skills. Because what I found was that when I was talking to juries, I ended up talking to one person and sort of getting drawn in to one person and not being able to in- bring in the other 11. And on Google, I literally found a presentation skills thing, which is about 10 minutes, and it taught two or three things. But one of which was that when you're addressing an audience, instead of staring at one person the whole time, what you do is you make a point looking slightly to the left, and then you you'll make another point where you look slightly to the right and then the third point you look in the middle and the fourth one if it's a jury you might sort of look slightly sort of left-ish and so that way you're deliberately breaking up where you're looking and so you're not staring down one person who happens to be in your eye line so they feel uncomfortable and everybody else gets excluded and that's literally how I learned that and then I just went and practiced it and it works Same with adjusting pace and tone. I got that, I think, from the same 10-minute video that I found on Google. So there's an enormous amount out there, but you have to make the effort to go and find it and watch it, and then you've got to make the effort to go and practice it. And the other thing is, do what I did. Go to court. Go and find a case where there are some really good silks, doing some really good advocacy, and watch them. And you'll learn a lot from that.
1: We've spoken about this before and I have looked at TED Talks and there have been a few presenters where I thought, oh, I get it. That's the pace that I should go at. Or I love the way that she paused. Or I I really enjoyed the way that he drew the crowd in and using those as examples for, say, any submissions that I might be making. So I think that's a really great tip.
0: Yeah, and it's free as well, of course. That's the other advantage of TED. And it's got every type of topic and every type of speaker as well. So you can pick a mix, you know, whoever, whatever you're interested in. They're all good, but some of them are outstanding and some of them are just good. And the ones that I always think are outstanding are the ones that have put a bit of themselves into the presentation, whereas the ones that are just good are the ones that have held a bit of themselves back, probably because of nerves. But you start to be able to see that as well, which is of itself a useful advocacy tip.
1: Can I ask you what you mean by that? seeing a bit of themselves because I think conceptually I understand it but when it comes to translating and me putting it into practice I'm not entirely sure and there might be people that aren't quite clear about that either.
0: In your daily lives when you come across somebody generally if they're not being authentic they're not being true to themselves you'll realise it either because you'll just you'll know it straight away or you'll just have this slightly uneasy feeling. Maybe that you can't articulate. The same is true with advocacy, and I often say to people, particularly junior practitioners, look, there is no stereotypical advocate. So you don't need to come here and suddenly start talking like an what you think a barrister should talk like, then putting on a different persona. You are here because you are you are yourself. You're good enough as you are. And good advocates come in all shapes and sizes and you don't have to change your fundamental way you speak, the person that you are. What you need to do is to learn the basic skills, the basic techniques, and then put that in with the person that you are in order to become the advocate that you're going to become. Because I do think that authenticity is key, because if you've got authenticity, then you will have trust. Um, whereas if you are clearly playing a part, um, I do think I think people notice that, and they don't trust you as much. People feel that they need to somehow become, you know, a, a character from a John Mortimer novel or something like that. And the answer is, you absolutely do not, and don't waste time trying. What you are is more than good enough. And all you have to do is learn the techniques that will just make your advocacy that bit better.
1: Now, just moving to specific areas of advocacy, and just to summarise, I want to look at preparation, submissions, examination in chief, and and cross-examination, and just go through each of those. What's your process for preparing cases and analysing them?
0: The first thing I will do is read any instructions if I've got any and then I will look at what the allegations are or what the issues are. That's the first thing. So that's the framework for what it's all about. Usually there'll be a case summary. The kind of cases I do tend to be, they generate quite a lot of paper. And so there'll be a case summary drafted either by the FCA or the SFO or whoever it is, Or if I'm prosecuting, I'll have ended up drafting it. But I will have had something similar from one of the investigators or one of the lawyers on the case. Um, So you go to that, you read that. And then often come away none the wiser. Um, And then what I will do is read a couple of the key statements. And then I will read the interviews, if there have been any, or written representations, if there have been any, by the subject or the subject firm. So that I've got at least the sort of framework, the scaffolding as to what the case is about. Then it's, I'm afraid for me, constant repetition, because the kind of cases that I tend to do now, as I say, they do generate a lot of paper and a lot of different facts and it's all pretty complex stuff. There'll be a lot of figures involved, there'll be a lot of documents and you just can't get on top of that in a couple of days and so what I will then do is I'll go through the case summary then I'll be turning up the various exhibits actually looking at the exhibits and the documents what do they show I create a working note on my computer um, of key documents and exhibits and key issues and areas where I think there's problems for us areas where I think that need more work needs to be done that sort of thing and then by a process of iteration in the end at at some point you get to the stage where you find that you are actually on top of it but if it is a big case then it does take time you, you can't do it overnight
1: one of the most disappointing things <laughs> that I have found is that there are no
0: shortcuts. <laughs> yeah, I'm afraid it's true. I know there are absolutely no shortcuts. And every case I've done, the, pre- the advocacy has only ever been as good as the amount of preparation that went into it. And any case where I've come away thinking I wasn't as good as I wanted to be will have been if I'm honest because the preparation wasn't as good as it should have been.
1: When you make the list of areas that are not so good for your case or areas that need more work, how much time do you spend, I can phrase it as bad facts, for example, but how much do you spend on dealing with those particular weaknesses of your case?
0: Those are the crucial issues. So often you'll find, let's say that you're defending in a fraud or representing a client in a disciplinary case or something like that. Often the clients that I represent are highly intelligent and you know, professional people. So you've never got a shortage of instructions. But often what you'll find is that you've got reams of instructions on the easy bits and virtually nothing on the difficult bits. Because the client can't engage with those because he he or she doesn't know what to say about them. And of course, you know that those are the key issues that are going to be focused on in the tribunal or in the Crown Court or, or by the FCA or whoever it is and so what you have to do and you have it's difficult to, the timing can be tricky because you don't want to literally the first time you meet the client sit down put them under the spotlight and cross examine them for hours because it's not a good way to build up trust but you know there has to come a point where the client needs to understand that these are the key points that actually could sink him or her and therefore we've got to find a way through them and I'm afraid it, it is then gently sort of forcing them to confront what those issues are and going through all the documents, etc., that relate to those issues. And what I will do is I will try and see if there are any holes in them and think for myself where that all fits into the bigger case and then at least to sort of show the client what the landscape is and what all the documents are and make them actually look at stuff so sometimes clients they get so worried about a particular point they just can't face it they can't deal with it and so part of it is you've got to actually say to them right let's look at this document together all right now you you have a read of that All right, now you can see that that says X, but the difficulty is we're saying Y. So we need to think about why that was. Let's take you back to where you were then and then do it that way and sort of gently force them to confront the issues that that are problematic. Because in the end, and and I say this to them, look, in the end, this is what this case is going to come down to. It doesn't matter about all this paper and all this noise. In the end, these big cases will come down to two or three issues. And if we don't have an answer to those issues, then we've got a problem. And so that's how I do it.
1: Brilliant. I'm definitely going to take that on. <laughs> it's really so helpful. And I know you, you have various roles. So you sit as a recorder. And for those that don't know, that's a part time um, circuit judge. You're... A very experienced advocacy trainer and of course your Queen's Council. In the cases that you have been involved in or um, in training that you have done, what are the sorts of mistakes or things that people don't do that you see as a problem or that are not as effective when it comes to case analysis or case preparation?
0: Often you can see that an advocate that just isn't on top of the case and they just haven't done the preparation. And some advocates don't seem to think that that's a problem. Even some silks I've come across who think that not having read the papers doesn't really seem to be an issue. They get up and they start asking questions in cross-examination and they they clearly not planned it and they don't seem to know where they're going or what the point of it all is and then blunder into some really dangerous areas and things don't go very well. But they don't seem to care. And there are people around who can do that um, and presumably sleep at night and, you know, perfectly happy and clearly relatively successful with it. It's just not something I've ever been able to do, I'm afraid. I don't have the nerve to go into court and not be 100% prepared. Sometimes, of course, if if it's an emergency case and you've had the papers for a very short time and you just have to get in there and firefight, then of course you do and you do the best you can. That doesn't tend to happen that often as a silk and certainly not if it's a big trial.
1: Going back to your point about getting papers at the last minute, do you have any advice for what to do when it feels like you have too many papers and too little time? An example being you receive the papers at 6pm and the hearings at 10 is there anything that you definitely do and other things that you don't do in order to prepare?
0: I mean, obviously that did used to happen. It doesn't really happen as a silk in the same way. But yes, I used to get last-minute returns all the time and I absolutely hated it. I mean, nobody enjoys being put in that position. The answer, I'm afraid, is a late night, a very late night, and occasionally an all-nighter. That's an old-fashioned approach now in the world of well-being. But in my experience, that's the only way that you're going to end up going to court, being sufficiently on top of the case to be able to discharge your duty of of doing the best you can. And I've done that more times than I can remember. I've been to bed at sort of 4 or 5 a.m. and then got up at 7 and gone to court um, or stayed up all night if I've had to. And obviously, as you get older, staying up all night becomes harder to do. But I still do it occasionally, even now. There are just no shortcuts to doing the preparation. And if that's what the case requires, the fact that you've got it at 6pm the night before is obviously totally unreasonable and unacceptable. But as we all know, that's part of your working life as a junior barrister. And it's a binary choice, really. You either do the work or you don't. If you don't do the work, you go to court, chances are it'll be a car crash you do do the work, you go to court, chances are it'll turn out all right, and then you'll get some sleep the following night. So that's how I do it, and I, I don't see there's any way out of that. I don't see any alternative. I don't think you can go along and say to the judge, I want an adjournment because I had not had time to read the papers. Of course, the annoying thing is that you may well have done all that preparation, then you turn up to court and the case isn't effective for various reasons. Some advocates will say, well, I'm not going to stay up all night because I'm going to take the risk that it won't be effective. But I've, I've never been able to do that. I just don't have the,
1: the nerve to do it. It's not worth the risk, that's for sure. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Understand that. And just before we move off the topic of preparation, are there any exercises or steps that you think that trial lawyers could take to improve their case preparation and analysis?
0: In a big case with lots of different facets of evidence, um, so documents, phone calls, um, using pay-as-you-go phones or whatever, witnesses, I think a chronology is absolutely key. So I will always start drafting a chronology more or less straight away. And then I'll add to it as I go continue with the reading. And my chronologies end up being like phone book size sometimes. And what I'll do is I'll actually put in chunks of witness statements where there's something particularly important that's said. Because I don't see any point in wasting my time paraphrasing what's been said. When actually what I want to know in the chronology is exactly what was said And then, you know, which documents relate to that fact. So, yeah, chronology is absolutely key. And even if one's been prepared for you and has been given to you as part of the papers, that's great as a starting point. But don't just rely on that. Use it to then create your own. So if you've been given it in PDF, use Adobe Pro to convert it into Word or something like that so that you can then just add to it and make it your own document. But yeah, a chronology is key. The other thing is, in a case of any size, you've got to make sure that you have made a note of exhibit reference numbers and page numbers. So in your chronology, you need to have a separate column which will reference where you can find the particular exhibit and the particular page reference. And and the same comes for any advocacy, so cross-examination, examination examination in chief, submissions or whatever. If you're referring to documents, which invariably you will be, make sure that you're meticulous in noting down in your working note, the page number, the exhibit reference, and if necessary, if it's a long exhibit, say 20 pages, You want to note, you know, page three, paragraph four, something like that, so that you are absolutely specific and you can take the court straight to the bit of the document that you want. So that's what I do. I always do that. And I'm meticulous about making sure that I've got cross-reference to sources everywhere so that I don't get caught out.
1: And I know that's the sort of thing that gets it firmly in your mind, but also obviously takes so much time. <laughs> because if you end up preparing something that's akin to a phone book, I can't even imagine how many hours that, that has taken you. But it's all in.
0: Yeah, I mean, it takes a long time. But I mean, obviously, the kind of case I do now, I'm instructed usually two, three years before the trial. So there's plenty of time to do it as long as you're disciplined about it. It's worth it. I mean, I'm afraid I always say to advocates, young advocates, there is no shortcut to preparation. If you want to be a really, really good advocate, there will be late nights, there will be all nighters occasionally, you'll work more weekends than you care to remember. But that's what will make the difference between you and a really good advocate.
1: I want to move now to speeches and the reason why I'm doing that is because I know as part of my preparation and something that I took on far too late is as part of your preparation preparing your submissions first is absolutely key. So when it comes to um, giving submissions what's your approach to preparing to deliver those speeches or submissions?
0: The one thing I always do in every case is I will write out my opening paragraph and my closing paragraph in full and then I will practice them both out loud in front of a mirror to make sure that the opening paragraph encapsulates the key reasons why we win or whatever and the closing paragraph gives a nice strong finish The discipline of writing it out in full and then practising it out loud makes you realise that actually it could be tightened up a bit, that could be said a little bit better, etc. But then basically you've got your two backstops, your opening paragraph, your closing paragraph. That's helpful because the point at which you're likely to be most nervous is when you first get to your feet and sometimes you'll get that I don't know if you've ever had it but I used to get that sort of choking feeling in the back of the throat like I'd swallowed a tennis ball and I wondered whether I'd actually be able to get any words out at all and so I found that writing out the opening paragraph in full got me over that initial grip of nerves once I'd finished the opening paragraph I'd started to settle in to the task And then, obviously, the rest of the preparation would be much more bullet points. So, you know, I would have said in the opening paragraph, there are three reasons why we win this case. Obviously not said quite like that. And then I would say what they were, and then I would then deal with each of the three issues. And I would have that much more in a bullet point form in my note. But then the other thing that you find, or I used to find a lot, is I would more or less said everything I wanted to say, but I wasn't quite sure how to finish it. And so I'd be sort of burbling on trying to think of a way to bring things to a close or trying to think of some powerful finishing gambit on the hoof and not being able to think of anything, obviously. And that's when I hit upon the idea that maybe what I needed to do was to have written out my closing paragraph in full so that when I got to the point where I thought, right, I've said what I need to say now and I need to end this. I've got my closing paragraph there to end it with, with a flourish. And then I can sit down. So those would be my top tips for any um, advocate who has encounters the same issues that I did.
1: Now, if we look at examination in chief or direct examination for the Americans, can you give an example of what you think is effective direct examination or examination in chief?
0: A really effective examination in chief allows the witness to tell the story themselves but you are actually controlling the way in which the is coming out. That uh, requires almost as much planning as a cross-examination. The biggest mistake that people make is that they get a witness statement from a witness and they go, right, fine, I'll use that. And then they try to examine the witness just using the witness statement. And it never works because witness statements are not written by people who are advocates so they don't understand necessarily how it would translate they're often not written in a particularly helpful order in terms of eliciting the evidence and also they don't bear any regard to things like rules of evidence and the fact that there's maybe some really important evidence in there that you can't lead on because it's key to the case and you have to think really carefully about how you're actually going to get that evidence out and none of that will be apparent if you're just all you're doing is using the witness statement. In my view and what I do with absolutely every witness that I examine in chief without fail is I'll, I'll take the witness statement and then I will create my own examination in chief note where I will literally start with name, occupation, expertise and have literally every question written out. And then sometimes I'll even have in square brackets what I anticipate the answer is going to be so that I can then ask the next question piggybacked off that answer. And then what that does is it helps me to plan. If there's a key bit of evidence where, for example, I have to get the person to say the car was blue, I can't just say the car was blue, wasn't it? I could just say what colour was the car, and hopefully he would say it was blue. But often by doing the preparation that I've talked about... It makes you realise that in order to get him or her to say the car was blue, you need to actually plan in several stages by asking several different questions in order to get to the key question, what colour was the car? That's my top tips for examination in chief. And whenever I've seen it done badly, it's always obvious why that is. And you'll see the advocate just waving around a witness statement and they won't have any notes at all and it's no wonder then that it's a car crash.
1: So by planning it out in that detail, are you able to allow the witness to bring the story to life and sound more interesting? Because I think I really enjoy cross-examination, it's where the fun is at times, if you prepared it well, but examination in chief can perhaps seem a bit drier. But from what you're saying, it sounds like it can be just as engaging if the witness is led. Oh, totally,
0: totally. Because you've done that preparation, you actually have a dialogue with the witness. And that's really important if it's your own witness. I can tell you, because I've actually been a witness in court proceedings, it's terrifying, even for somebody like me. The fact that they may have made a witness statement in a case six months or a year ago, or sometimes even longer, and then they have to come to court and be asked questions about it, is really daunting for most people. And so the more you can do to put them at their ease and actually engage in a dialogue with them, the more comfortable they become and the more able they are to tell their story. And when I plan an examination in chief, I plan deliberately to ensure that I am asking open questions. It's just that each open question deals with one topic at a time. It builds on the previous answer that I'm anticipating I would have got to the previous question. So that maintains a a logical structure and a chronology. And then when, as I say, we get to difficult points, I will have planned out in stages how we're going to move towards the difficult evidence. If it's a case where the person's having to describe something that's very personal, very unpleasant, you don't want to start with that. You've got to find a way of bedding them in, of giving them a chance to just get used to what they're doing and to relax a bit. Really, what it's all about is putting the witness at their ease as much as possible, making them realise that you're there as somebody that they can trust to help them get through this ordeal. And then let them tell the story, but with you kind of giving them the help and direction to know where to go.
1: Now, if we can talk about cross-examination. I was wondering if you could tell us how, as a trial lawyer, you can actually tell if your cross-examination is ineffective. And the reason why I'm asking that is I know that if I'm being interrupted by the judge (laughs) and the judge is saying, what's your point? where is this going? And I'm not able to answer that. I immediately realised that my cross examination is perhaps it needed a lot more tweaking or a lot more work and it just wasn't being effective. But are there any other ways that you think that trial lawyers can see pretty quickly that their cross examination is not being effective and how can they deal with that?
0: It depends a lot on your audience. Always keep an eye on your audience. If your audience is the judge or a tribunal, or your audience is a jury, just always keep in mind, without going and scanning necessarily, staring straight at them, but you'll always be able to see them in your eye line. And you can normally tell by the body language whether the, what you're doing is, is helping or not. If it's not, well, sometimes you still have to do it anyway. Because you've got a duty to put certain questions or to put your case or whatever it is. But it can be done either in a rather long roundabout way or it can be done actually rather more quickly. And my suggestion would be that if you've got a judge going, you know, I, do I really need all this for Mr. Dejo? Do I, uh, is this helping me? Blah, blah, blah. What he's really or she or she is really trying to say is, is just get on with it. And if that's the steer you're getting from your target audience, then generally it's better to try and deliver what your target audience wants. Within reasons, sometimes you can't because there are certain things you have to do because that's your duty to your client and your client's case. For example, when you're picking a witness up on an inconsistency, there are ways that you can do it where it really drags it out and then it really rubs it in the point, you know, and it's a really sort of big thing or you can do it much more quickly and say well you know earlier you said that but can you look at this witness statement where you said this well they can't both be true can they so you've got to read the mood i think is what i'm trying to say and if the cue you're getting from your target audience is can you please just hurry up then that's what you should do within the limits of what your duty is to your case and your client
1: the other thing that i was wondering about was controlling witnesses because i know for me when i was starting out I found it hard to control witnesses when I was cross-examining them. So do you have any tips for, say, for example, the evasive witness who says that they can't remember? How do you manage that in cross-examination?
0: Same way as you manage any witness. Control in cross-examination is all about closed questions. So it's one point at a time, always asked in a way that, that invites really only a yes or no answer. And each question builds on the question before. By doing that, A, it hems in the witness, but B, what it means is that the audience is actually listening to you rather than the witness, because you're the one doing most of the talking. And so you craft the questions in a way that builds your own narrative bit by bit. Whether the witness says yes or no actually doesn't really matter that much because it's you that the court is actually listening to, and it's you that's creating the case theory that the court is listening to. But as long as you ask the questions in a closed way, then you will be keeping control. And there will be witnesses that will say, well, y- yes, in answer to your question, yes, but can I just add the following things? Obviously, you can never stop a witness doing that. They're perfectly entitled to do it. But That's something that you should have anticipated when you're crafting your cross-examination. So I will always think to myself, okay, if I ask this question, what is he or she likely to say? Can I live with whatever they're likely to say? If the answer is, well, if he says that, he or she says that, then actually I can't live with that. Then often I'll think to myself, can I think of another question to ask or a different question? So again, it really goes back to preparation. And then the basic tools of one point per time, building up to a theme, close questions always, unless you've got a vulnerable witness, and quit while you're ahead, which is really important. Is you know, If you think, yes, I've got as far as I need to go, then usually that's good enough, particularly in civil cases. That will be good enough because that will give you enough to move the burden of proof, the, uh, the civil burden of proof in your favour.
1: Does that mean then with the witness who is particularly verbose and says, yes, but then carries on for paragraphs because of the preparation that you've done, you're actually not as worried about what they say because you've anticipated and prepared for that?
0: Yes, exactly. And so, you know, if a witness wants to answer a question and take five minutes to do it, actually, that's their prerogative, really. There's not a lot you can do about that. Because you've asked the question, they're entitled to answer it. If they're being deliberately evasive and going on and on and on and on, you'd expect the judge to intervene and say, "Okay, well, Miss Jones, could you please just go back to the question that was asked? But often what I'll do is I'll just stand there politely and let them talk. And usually when that happens, they won't have even answered the question. And so then I'll just say, "Um, Miss Jones, you haven't answered my question. So I'm just going to ask it again. And I just ask it again. And everybody's noticed that this long five-minute speech hasn't actually answered the question. Or if it's just a long five-minute speech, just, yeah, you've got to let them do it. But it doesn't really matter, because I'll know that whatever it is they have to say won't be killer for my cross-examination, because I will have anticipated what they're likely to do, what they're likely to say.
1: There's no point in arguing with the witness and suggesting they lie, and, and you have to be very careful about that. So how do you deal with witnesses who, for you, are quite obviously lying, but that might not be so apparent to the tribunal?
0: A lot of witnesses are, uh, that I come across in the kind of cases I do, do tell lies. But you don't get what you might see in an American courtroom drama, the witness breaking down in court and going, yes, all right, I did it. Everything I said was lies. In real life, it never happens. Well, it's happened to me once in 26 years. Let's put it that way. And that was a complete surprise. Nobody saw it coming. And it's never happened since. So what you don't do is try to get to a position where you expect that they're going to suddenly say, yes, all right, it's a fair cop, I did it, or everything you've said is true and I've just been lying through my teeth for the last three days. That never happens. So what you do is you structure the cross-examination to lead them through various stages until they get to a point where you confront them with the actual issue that they've lied about. And they don't have an answer. So they'll either go off and ramble for five minutes like we've just talked about, or they will just deflect the question and just not answer it. And it'll be obvious to everyone in court why that is. And then if you've got a duty to put your case, which you definitely have in crime, and obviously you do have in civil, but it doesn't have to be done in quite the same way, then you'll say to them, you know, this is a lie, isn't it? The reason you can't answer this question is because you're lying. And they'll go, no, 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 that's not true. But who are the audience listening to? If I've done a really carefully planned cross-examination that has led the horse slowly but surely to the water trough and then it has pretty much sort of shoved their head into the water trough and yet the horse still won't drink, who's the audience listening to? They're going to be listening to me. So um, I'm never worried about witnesses who are lying. I think in the end they, they undo themselves but you have to plan it. You have to plan it. You can't get up with a really good liar. You cannot get up and ask a few questions that you've written on the back of an envelope on the tube on the way to court and expect it to go well. You just can't. So as long as you planned it, it'll go well. If you haven't, it'll be a car crash.
1: Yes, let's avoid the car crashes. Since you sit as a judge, what have you noticed about advocacy that you didn't appreciate before as a trial lawyer?
0: Sitting as a judge is hugely um, useful to improving advocacy because you become, to use a horrible expression, the ultimate consumer. And you can really see what it is that a judge needs. And what I immediately realised from sitting in crime, but frankly also in civil, is how little time you actually get to get on top of a case. So in crime, they'd have the digital case system, so you can now get your papers the night before. You didn't used to be able to. In civil, it's all still a paper-based system. So you have to turn up in the morning, and whatever it is that's on your desk for you to deal with that day, you've got two, three hours tops, depending on how early you get in, to try and read all this stuff before you go into court. So inevitably, you are never on top of the case in the way that the advocates are. And so what you really do appreciate is an advocate who can make complicated things simple and who can make your life easier. So when the advocate gets up and says, you know, Your Honour, don't worry about the fact that you've got two lever arch files. The issue is this. The only issue between the parties that you need to focus on is this. And the key evidence is A and B. My case is X, his case is Y. And then we can get on with the trial suddenly that advocate has made my life so much easier and i will immediately trust that advocate and then obviously provided it does turn out that the key issue is x and not y and (laughs) abc but invariably it is and the other thing that as well that i've noticed that makes a real difference is structuring written submissions When you've got a skeleton argument, it's silly things like giving someone a 25-page skeleton argument and expecting them to read it when they only got the papers an hour before the hearing. It's hopeless. So shorter documents rather than longer. The other thing that people don't think about is what I want to know at the beginning is what's your case? What are the issues that I'm being asked to determine? So the issues are A and B. And then why do you win? So what's your case on those issues? And then tell me, you know, if you need to, what the law is. And then, you know, a little bit of analysis, factual analysis. But I really know now how to draft a written document in a way that when the judge gets it, they're going to go, thank goodness for that. And so that's one of the other things that being a judge has taught me.
1: Sarah, you've been able to give us so many different tips and pointers for improving our advocacy but what would you say are the three practical tips that you would like to share with our listeners to improve their advocacy in trials?
0: I won't bang on any more about preparation because I've said a lot about that so just assume that the preparation is a given. Three practical tips. The first is to really think about how fast you're speaking and slow your speaking down until it almost feels uncomfortable. And TED Talks are good for this because you can see that that's what people are doing there. When you do that, it gives your brain the chance to catch up with your mouth. And it also gives you time to pause and take in what's going on in the courtroom. Is the judge taking an interest? Are the jury interested if you have a jury? What's your client doing um, next to you or in the dock or whatever? And it just gives you that little bit of extra thinking time. And also, once you've slowed down your talking, it then naturally brings in, and you can hear me doing this now. I'm slightly putting it on for you, but you can... Then bring in things like emphasis of a particularly important point. And then you can do changes of pace and tone. So you can talk faster and louder for one particular bit and then bring it back. And then, members of the jury, what happened? You remember, don't you? You heard from Mrs Jones. You've then got slowing down, which brings with it gravitas, time to think, which then brings with it the ability to vary pace and tone. That's real advocacy. And then the other thing that I do in order to help with all of that is I will get um, I have a, a huge collection of those BIC four colour biros. I've got one here. I'll hold it up for you, um, which I commend to every advocate because you can write the notes in one colour. You can underline in others, etc. But what I will do is I, if I've got a speaking note, I'll take that biro and I will underline the words that I want to emphasise. And for every pause, I'll put a stroke mark in a different colour, so for a, for, over a comma and a full stop. And if there's a word that I really want to emphasise, then I'll circle it or I'll underline, you know, a whole line or something so that when I'm, I'm on my feet, I've got a visual aid that reminds me to do the things that I've just been describing. So that would be my key top tip for advocates. You'll often find that advocates talk too fast, And if all you do, if you just get them to slow down, suddenly you can see them come alive. And the reason is, as I say, because it just gives you time to think and time to then work on actually being an advocate. So that's tip number one. Tip number two is closed questions in cross-examination it's so simple it's the basic skill that we all get taught when we start out but so many advocates I come across even at Keeble when people have been in practice for seven eight years they're still not doing it and they don't understand therefore why their cross-examinations run away with them and end up they end up not getting what they need particularly important with expert witnesses if you don't cross-examine an expert using closed questions you're finished So that's absolutely key. And then the last one, it's a presentational thing. Look the part, by which I don't mean, you know, turn up trying to look like a character out of a John Waterman novel. I absolutely do not mean that. But what I do mean is, you know, make sure your shirt is ironed. If you're wearing robes, your bands are ironed and stiff and white, that your suit is clean. You look presentable and professional. A lot of advocates, they turn up to court and they look like they just got out of bed. And it's the whole package that the court's going to buy into. And you're not going to win a case based on whether you've ironed your shirt. Of course you're not. But if you actually look professional and like you've made an effort and you're taking the whole court process seriously with the level of gravitas that the process deserves, then inevitably it will feed into the impression that you create with the court that you are somebody who is professional who makes an effort who's done the work and who the court can trust and when the court trusts you as an advocate then surprising things can happen you can win cases that you thought you were not going to win if you lose a case you may find that you haven't lost it quite as badly as you thought you were going to ultimately what it comes down to is authenticity and professionalism
1: i'm definitely going to take that tip about the 10 (laughs) and highlighting and circling that's brilliant yes
0: the four color biro yeah I've got a ridiculous collection you can buy them in Ryman's every time I go past and they're doing a three for the price of two offer I end up buying another six (laughs) when I die when I die and my kids are having to go through my study they'll find a whole drawer that's literally full of of bit color biro's I think I've got enough to see me into
1: retirement now sad but true (laughs) can you share details of where our listeners can connect with you online
0: yeah i'm on linkedin i don't use it very much but i I do use it a bit so that's the obvious place and you can see my profile and stuff through my chambers website
1: links to that will also be on the advocacypodcast.com thank you so much sarah thank you for listening to the advocacy podcast journeys to excellence
0: if you enjoyed the episode Please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.